there were 19 skulls. The oldest was more than 3,000 years old, the youngest a mere century and a half. The most recent were also the smallest, a matched pair no bigger than mastiff skulls, and oddly misshapen, all that remained the last two hatchlings born on Dragonstone. They were the last of the Targaryen dragons, perhaps the last dragons anywhere, and they had not lived very long. From there the skulls ranged upward in size to the three great monsters of song and story, the dragons that Aegon Targaryen and his sisters had unleashed on the seven kingdoms of old. The singers had given them the names of gods, Balerion, Meraxes, Vagar. Tyrion had stood between their gaping jaws, wordless and awed. You could have ridden a horse down Vagar's gullet, although you would not have ridden it out again. Meraxes was even bigger, and the greatest of them. Balerion, the Black Dread, could have swallowed an oryx hole, or even one of the hairy mammoths said to roam the cold wastes beyond the port of Ibn. Tyrion stood in that dank cellar for a long time, staring at Balerion's huge, empty-eyed skull until his torch burned low, trying to grasp the size of the living animal, to imagine how it must have looked when it spread its great black wings and swept across the skies, breathing fire. Seriously, take a look and imagine what it would be like to face that. The level of intimidation, not to mention the level of actual devastation unleashed by Balerion, is an underrated factor in the success of the conquest. Nineteen skulls, and none bigger than Balerion, the biggest dragon of all time that we know of. Even the 3,000-year-old one mentioned there, which must be some kind of famous or important dragon for them to have kept for so long, it's not as big. It's certainly possible Aegon the Conqueror could have done what he did without the Black Dread, but with a lesser dragon, would he have even tried, let alone succeeded? We're going to run through the dragon's full history, and you can decide the answer to that for yourself, along with a few other questions. History of Westeros is brought to you by our fellow Westorians via Patreon and Anchor. That includes folks like Jeff Gnarly the Long Snapper, History of Westeros' First Sword, and Lord Mark of House Joseph, the Snow and Winterfell, Rider of Mazalacartho, a white dragon with green scales, horns, wings, and talons. Join us at patreon.com slash historyofwesteros or by following the support link in the podcast episode description. Your support means a lot to us, but it also gets you benefits like bonus episodes such as the Red Kraken, an episode on Dalton Greyjoy, and Gagasos, the City of Blood Magic. By the time you hear or see this, we may have added more members-only episodes to the list. The Dreamer and the Doom. We begin in Valyria, before it ends, but not long before. Aenar the Exile has just decided to heed the prophecy of his daughter Daenys the Dreamer and begins the preparations that will move House Targaryen away from the heart of power in Valyria. The other dragon lords scorn them as cowards. The black and red egg that became Balerion had hatched not long before that fateful decision was made. At the time, it may have been somewhat unremarkable, as there were 40 dragonlord families in the Freehold, and a low estimate would be 200 dragons, but it could easily be 600, if not 800, or even more than 1,000. Still, Balerion was named for a god of Valyria, and we doubt there were enough Valyrian gods for hundreds of dragons to each be named for one. So the dragon that would become the Black Dread may have been notable right out of the egg. Was the Valyrian god Balerion also black with red highlights? Maybe. While we're at it, were the Targaryens already associated with those colors prior to coming to Westeros? 
I don't think they were. We've got no evidence to suggest Valyrian houses picked out certain colors to associate with their house. That's a Westerosi thing. We know for a certainty that they didn't have a sigil until Aegon's invasion. The three-headed dragon was chosen to represent Aegon, Visenya, and Rhaenys, but perhaps the black and red colors were chosen because of their biggest dragon, the one that represented their most important advantage. A natural question is, weren't a lot of the Targaryen dragons named for Valyrian gods? Yes, Vagar and Meraxes and others later on were also named after Valyrian gods, but crucially, they were hatched after the doom, when they were the only dragons left. Valerian was named for a god at a time when there were hundreds or more dragons in the Freehold. Vagar and Meraxes and the others were named when they were among the very few left in the entire world. So it's not as meaningful. Perhaps for this or other reasons, like being unusually large or aggressive or both, the Targaryens noted something special about the hatchling from an early age and chose the name Valerian accordingly. A compelling idea we like is that Daenys the Dreamer herself saw something in the dragon's future. And what a future it turned out to be. The last Targaryen dragon born in Valyria, hatched not long before the doom, bringer of doom to Westeros. When we think of prophecy, we usually think of big events. There are exceptions, of course. Prophecy is like that. But Valyrian forges the Iron Throne, for example. What a symbolic event that is. There's the Field of Fire, the Black Dread burning the Five Towers of Harrenhal just after it's built. What about years later, burning the Sept of Remembrance, or killing Aegon the Younger and the Dragon Quicksilver? This is the stuff prophetic dreams are made of. Finally, Daenys wrote down so many prophetic dreams and visions that it filled a whole book. A prolific prophet. When we lay it out like that, it's almost hard to believe Daenys the Dreamer didn't have dreams and visions of the Black Dread. Daenerys dreamed of Drogon before he hatched too, and there's a decent chance Beleriand was Daenys the Dreamer's dragon directly. Let's get back to things we're more certain of. In the year 114 BC, House Targaryen executed their move to Dragonstone. Twelve years after that, the doom came, and all of a sudden the number of dragons in the world was reduced to a tiny fraction of what it had been. This quote tells us the other four non-Valerian dragons who came over from Valyria died, though new dragons like Vagar and Meraxes hatched, and in successive generations, even more dragons would hatch at Dragonstone and elsewhere. Valerian alone had come to the island with Aenar the Exile and Daenys the Dreamer, the youngest of the five dragons they brought with them. The older dragons had died during the intervening years, but Balerion lived on, growing ever larger, fiercer, and more willful. That last line strikes us as important going forward. If you're strong enough, you decide where the dragon goes. If you aren't, the dragon decides. The more willful the dragon, the more strength you need. We see this with Daenerys in her first flights with Drogon. Aenar himself may never have been the writer of Balerion, but it seems likely that one or more of... The other lords of Dragonstone prior to Aegon the Conqueror did. In other words, he probably wasn't the first. After all, why not take the biggest dragon? And we know that except for a little while early on in his life, Balerion was always the biggest. That's the logic behind what Magor the Cruel did later, perhaps at his mother's suggestion. But still, he didn't claim a hatchling. He waited for his father to die, then went for the big one. The biggest one. By the time Aegon himself chose Balerion, the dragon had probably already acquired the nickname the Black Dread, as the beast was already over 100 years old by that time. But the name might not have come until, say, the conquest itself, when Balerion actually showed the full extent of his dreadfulness. Take what Tyrion does in the opening quote. Picture how intimidating this creature was 
But this time, think about it from Aegon's perspective and realize that instead of facing it, he controls the giant beast. Thinking about what Balerion would look like from his enemy's perspective, it's no wonder the conquest seemed like a reasonable possibility. But there's more to it. Consider what we know about dragons. For most of their life, they just keep getting bigger, and their scales keep getting tougher, and their fires burn ever hotter. So while eventually it tapers off, we think there's a case to be made that around the time of the conquest, Balerion was in his prime. So sticking with Aegon's perspective, you don't have to be overconfident to think, what could possibly stop me with this beast on my side? Not to mention your sister's having dragons too. All the same, while that might be a fair estimation of your chances, riding a god, having it do your bidding and all, might go to your head a bit. Aegon didn't go straight from zero to conquest, however. He had at least one famous test run on Balerion that we know of. During the tail end of the Century of Blood, Aegon joined with several of the free cities to push back against Volantine hegemony. After a meeting in Pentos, he flew to Lys, where a fleet sent from Volantis was preparing to invade the city. Instead... That Valentine fleet was burned to cinders by Balerion the Black Dread. They would go on to burn quite a few more ships, lots of Ironborn, for example, among other things, and people. If Aegon lacked sufficient confidence for his greater plans, the ease at which he took out an entire armada may have sealed the deal. Or perhaps this success is what got him on track in the first place. Like, oh, look how easy this is. Seeing Balerion in action may have shown him just how much more potential there was. We're told Aegon had visited several important locations in Westeros prior to beginning the conquest, but it's not known if he went to these places on Balerion, or if he just, you know, took ship or cart. He probably did ride Balerion, though. And there's a good chance that the people who saw it were intimidated. I mean, it's not hard to imagine, right? When time came for the conquest to begin in earnest, though, quite a few lords and ladies and knights and commoners would have already seen Balerion, Thus, they were pre-intimidated before the war even started. So before it even got going, they could be thinking, hell no, I'm not fighting that. Or, gods, please don't make me fight that, depending on the rank of the person in question. The Conqueror and the Throne. A glimpse of the king in all his power, mounted on Balerion the Black Dread, and attended by hundreds of knights glittering in silk and steel, did much to instill loyalty in restless lords. Once you see Balerion, you think twice about ever wanting to fight him. Common sense, if you even entertain the notion in the first place, which is also common sense. Still, quite a few would line up to fight that and fail horribly. There are a lot of battles during the conquest, but not once do we hear of Balerion or Aegon taking a wound of note. It's entirely possible that a lucky shot, like the one that eventually took down Meraxes, was the only hope any army ever had, and in some cases even that was beyond remote. Aegon flew above the ranks of his foes upon Balerion through a storm of spears and stones, and arrows swooping down repeatedly to bathe his foes in flame. Mostly, it's just as hopeless as one might expect. We've talked about how terrifying the idea of a dragon is just based on the skull alone, and we've talked about how terrifying regular battle without dragons is. It must be all the more terrifying if you judge it to be hopeless before the battle even begins, and though we're looking at it after the fact, I'm not sure it's unfair to say, even in hindsight, that it was ever anything but hopeless. And whatever fleeting hope there was would be diminished with each passing kingdom falling to the Targaryens. But it wasn't just tales of defeat that reached them. Consider the rumor mill across the land after word began to spread. On wings as black as pitch, Balerion plunged through the night, and when the great towers of Harrenhal appeared beneath him, the dragon roared his fury and bathed them in black fire, shot through with swirls of red. 
Stone does not burn, Harren had boasted, but his castle was not made of stone alone. Wood and wool, hemp and straw, bread and salted beef and grain, all took fire. Nor were Harren's ironmen made of stone. Smoking, screaming, shrouded in flames, they ran across the yards and tumbled from the wall walks to die upon the ground below. And even stone will crack and melt if a fire is hot enough. The river lords outside the castle walls said later that the towers of Harrenhal glowed red against the night, like five great candles. And like candles, they began to twist and melt as runnels of molten stone ran down their sides. Everyone knows that dragons breathe fire, but seeing that Valerian's flame was actually hot enough to melt stone, that would be news to many. Bad, very bad news. This again is an example of Balerion's unique presence in the conquest. We're doubtful that Vagar or Meraxes at this point in history had the potency with their dragon flame to burn stone structures like that. Kill armies and win battles, sure, definitely. Lots of examples there. But there are also lots of examples of Vagar and Meraxes burning castles, including much, much later when Vagar burned castles in the Riverlands during the Dance of the Dragons. A lot later. So, of course, this was when she was older and larger, but even then, we don't hear of this level of destruction or anything like melted stone. Yet, Aemond, writer of Vagar, was aiming for maximum destruction. So, if Vagar could burn things like that, you'd think it would have happened. Yet, only the Black Dread has a resume that includes melted stone. Consider next, then, the Field of Fire. All the terror and confusion that comes with a truly large battle... And remember that the Reach slash Westerland's joint force was the largest army ever fielded for a battle in Westeros, combined with the terror of facing not just Balerion's stone-melting flames, but Vagar and Meraxes too. These beasts could kill you by accident, with a casual flick of the tail, so when they're actually trying to kill you, it must be truly indescribable. Okay, you can be brave when you're afraid, but how do you face that with bravery? especially with the very landscape, the field, engulfed in fire. The Starks famously surrendered without a fight, though it strongly hinted that on the march, Lord Torrin had yet to decide, only for the sight of the dragon circling above to clarify the scope of their danger. That's easy to believe. And if it's true, it would surely be Balerion that inspired the greatest reservations, given that Harrenhal was still smoldering in places when Lord Torrin's scouts came upon it. Keep in mind that after Aegon defeated Harren, he went south to fight in the Field of Fire, then returned to the Trident to accept Torrin Stark's surrender. So that entire time, all the way south and back, Harrenhal was still burning. Dorne combined the wisdom of the Starks in not facing the dragons directly with the stubbornness of many of the other kingdoms in refusing to bend the knee without a fight. Well, in their case, they didn't bend the knee at all, or at least not till much, much later. This approach preserved most of their people and even slew Meraxes eventually, but they did pay a high price in property damage. Every castle in Dorne was burned thrice over as Balerion and Vagar returned time and time again. The sands around the Hellholt were fused into glass in places. So hot was Balerion's fiery breath. That's another mention of Balerion's fires burning hotter than the other dragons. Much later, when the Conqueror's funeral was held, the sword Blackfire was placed in the beer with the dead king, which was then lit by Vagar, not Balerion. Blackfire was permanently scorched by Vagar's flames, but since Valerians would be hotter, I wonder if they were concerned that Valerian steel could actually be damaged or misshapen by the Black Dread's flames. Maybe don't take that chance. That was, of course, the idea with all the collected swords that forged the seat of conquest, those they wanted to melt for the Iron Throne. 
the dread, and the cruel. Ned could feel cold steel against his fingers as he leaned forward. Between each finger was a blade, the points of twisted swords fanning out like talons from the arms of the throne. Even after three centuries, some were still sharp enough to cut. The Iron Throne was full of traps for the unwary. The songs said it had taken a thousand blades to make it, heated white-hot in the furnace breath of Balerion the Black Dread. The hammering had taken fifty-nine days. The end of it was this hunched black beast made of razor edges and barbs and ribbons of sharp metal. A chair that could kill a man, and had, if the stories could be believed. The last line refers most of all to the possibility that Magor the Cruel was killed by the throne itself, as he was found dead on it with no one around to take blame, or credit. Magor was also the second rider of Beleriand after the conquest, and he continued to prove that you simply can't win a direct confrontation with the Black Dread. Whether murdered by the throne, or by his own king's guard, or by someone else entirely, the way to stop Magor's deprivations atop Beleriand was to kill the rider, because killing the dragon was just not going to happen. Even when the weather conditions very much favor the dragon's foes, same result. A rainstorm dampened Balerion's fires, but could not quench them entirely. And amid smoke and screams, King Magor descended again and again to serve his foes with flame. And usually, Magor's foes were the faithful. The church's position on dragons prior to the doctrine of exceptionalism was that dragons were basically demons, foul beasts worthy of nothing but death. Many of them got a chance to try to kill Balerion, though, again, that might be stretching the definition of the word chance, <laughs> or try. Many faithful would die to Balerion's flames, teeth, claws, and tail, with not even a hint of success. It says a lot about the passion of their beliefs that they would keep trying, despite the seeming lack of hope. But the war against the faith came mostly during his reign, and Magor claimed Balerion well before he claimed the Iron Throne riding him throughout his half-brother Aenys's reign, helping him put down rebellions as Hand of the King. Though part of the time he spent in Pentos in exile, several years, who did he stay with? Someone with lots of large animals to spare for dragon feeding, I presume? Big food bill there. Magor had the sword Blackfire as well, which would later become a great symbol of House Targaryen, ditto Aegon's crown. But those symbols meant far, far less in this era, in the era when dragons were about. The real symbol of power in the era of dragons was dragons. Just as we speculated that Aegon the Conqueror might have just been Aegon the Lord of Dragonstone if not for Balerion, Magor may not have won the Iron Throne from his nephew if not for the Black Dread. And the largest dragon is the biggest power. The reasons why are as obvious as you might think. They aren't just symbols after all, as this example from the brief civil war between Aenys's descendants and Magor illustrate. Quicksilver, a quarter the size of Balerion, was no match for the older, fiercer dragon, and her pale white fireballs were engulfed and washed away in great gouts of black flame. Then the black dread fell upon her from above, his jaws closing round her neck as he ripped one wing from her body. Screaming and smoking, the young dragon plunged to earth, and Prince Aegon with her. So size does matter. Jot that down. It's a stunning description and must have been terrifying for the soldiers on the ground to behold. It's a testament to the power of Balerion in the wrong hands. Now, for all we know, Prince Aegon was a scumbag too, but we don't really know much about him. And we know for sure that Magor well earned that moniker, The Cruel. I wonder if any Targaryen or other prophetic source dreamed of that dragon versus dragon battle, Daenys or otherwise. It was the first 
dragon versus dragon encounter since the days of the Freehold, we're told, which means it was the first time Targaryen dragons had clashed at all, unless they clashed prior to the Doom. Speaking of, as we mentioned earlier, Megor may have given the Dragon Dreamers some serious fodder with this gruesome event. On the thirtieth day since the Trial of Seven, the king awoke with the sunrise and walked out onto the walls. Thousands cheered, though not at the Sept of Remembrance, where hundreds of the warriors' sons had gathered for their morning prayers. Then Magog mounted Balerion and flew from Aegon's high hill to the Hill of Rainies and, without warning, unleashed the Black Dread's fire. As the Sept of Remembrance was set alight, some tried to flee, only to be cut down by the archers and spearmen that Magor had made ready. The screams of the burning and dying men were said to echo through the city, and scholars claim that a pall hung over King's Landing for seven days. Balerion had no way of knowing that he was not just wiping out Magor's enemies, he was clearing the way for his new home. In place of the Sept of Remembrance, the Dragon Pit was built, but it wouldn't be finished until 13 years later in 55 AC. So Balerion would have to wait a while longer to move into his new domed home, and he would be the first to live there, though by then, Magor had been dead for seven years. Magor's death is one of the reasons the Dragon Pit took so long. The civil conflict was a major distraction. Of course, a change in regimes meant a shift in priorities. What happened next could have been prevented if the Dragon Pit had been finished sooner, though. However, we hesitate to place blame on anyone in particular. It just kind of happened. In fact, this event is a major reason why finishing the Dragon Pit became a priority again. Back to the Dragon Pit in a moment. But first, thanks to Bloodrider's Kohokoi, called Sunpiercer, wielder of a dragon bone bow, Kakavo the Tamer, wielder of the wildfire whip Gehenna, and screenwriter Catherine Van Pelt, wielder of a Valerian steel quill, slayer of unoriginal screenplays. Selsor captains include Peter Blaze of the Emerald Isle, captain of the Werewood Wanderers, to long lives, quick deaths, cold beer, and warm women. Dagron, marshal of the axe, captain of the red tide, resistance is futile. Chiron Callsbane, captain of the stone shields, the torrent breaks upon the stone. Hema Helminth, captain of the whispering children, dead men tell no secrets. Shepard, the shepherd of Essos, all men are sheep before the shepherd heir to the Whispering Children. Lady Lajara Dajo, the Iron Lily, Master Archer and Castellan of the Summer Island Keep Arboreal Point, Captain of the All-Female Wailing Widows, Women and Children First. Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Blackrune is Captain of the Shadow Wolves, Our Steel is Cold, Our Vengeance Colder. Black Alex Sand is the Bastard of Spears, Leader of the Bermuda Vanguard. Vorian of House Betterfetter is Captain of the Golden Fetters. We face oppression with style. Aegon the Underestimated, Captain of the Clanking Dragons. Our clank is clank as clank. Lady Sarah Connolly the Willful says, Wit beyond measure is man's greatest treasure. She's Jenny's patron. Sir Terence, Knight of the Cedars. Special shout out for you, my friend. And from the depths of Flea Bottom, Lord Ken of House Hammer has declared for Queen Kari, Fire of the North, who recovered Dark Sister from beyond the wall and a laurel of glory in the name of love to Bud of House Beresford, Knight of Tolkien and Arbiter of Scotch from Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson. The Princess and the Return Princess Arya was gone. She had fled Dragonstone as dawn broke, stealing into the yards and claiming a dragon for her own, and not just any dragon. Balerion! Raina exclaimed. She took Balerion, the mad child. No hatchling for her. No, not her. She had to have the black dread. Magor's dragon, the beast that slew her father. Unfortunately, the beast would effectively kill her too. Though not directly, probably not on purpose. How did it happen? 
Or did she just stroll right up to Blurry and hop on? We need video footage. At first, the king was more worried about what she'd do with the dragon than anything else. Jaehaerys, who had taken little note of Arya, even during the years that she had been his heir, chided himself now for that neglect. But it was Balerion who most concerned him, for well he understood the dangers of a beast so powerful in the hands of an angry 13-year-old girl. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. A teenager on a black and red dragon, of course, reminds us of Daenerys. And on the Dothraki Sea, we see Danny at first struggle to control Drogon, but she seems to learn to master him somewhat given time. There are huge differences here, though. Their size, their age, and Arya didn't hatch Balerion like Danny hatched Drogon. A central theme that permeates the Song of Ice and Fire is the nature of power, how it can be abused, how even the exercise of power changes the wielder of that power as well as those who fall under its sway. Thus, Jaehaerys' concerns are rational. After all, the prior rider of Beleriand was Magor. While Erea was nothing like him, power can go to one's head. Power corrupts. And Erea was, well, a Targaryen. And a person. Even good people can be corrupted by power at times, if not often. It gives people ideas. I mean, we suggested that Aegon the Conqueror got part of the idea from the conquest by seeing Beleriand in action... So what would Erea be inspired to do, or conquer, or destroy, or whatever, while also riding Valerian? Still, while that's a relevant concern, it turned out to be misplaced. Even if she had wanted to, Erea wasn't able to control the dragon enough to cause anyone harm other than herself. It seems simple enough, in a sense, that Valerian was just too much beast for such a young person. At least if we go by Septon Barth's takes on the matter... And we probably should, given his track record on dragon knowledge. If we discount the tales of certain sorcerers and mountebanks, as we should, he is mayhaps the only living creature in the world that knew Valyria before the doom. And that is where he took the poor doomed child clinging to his back. If she went willingly, I would be most surprised. But she had neither the knowledge nor force of will to turn him. It's not the only example of a dragon returning to the place of its birth that we have on record. The most famous case is perhaps that of Sunfire returning to Dragonstone after what seemed like a wound that would render the dragon unable to fly. Did Balerion return to the location he hatched precisely in Valyria? It would be a ruin now, wherever it is, but perhaps there are some portions of the structure still there, meaning something other than magma and a blasted landscape. Perhaps we will get more clues as to what's really over there in Valyria as the series moves forward. It's compelling to consider that Balerion, thanks to flight, went much deeper inland on the haunted peninsula than any of the possible human explorations by ship have gone, or may not have gone. While we have examples of children flying younger dragons, there's no example of a young person controlling Balerion. Though Erea returned in terrible shape, it was the place they went and whatever was there that caused her harm. Meaning that if Balerion had truly wanted her gone... I'm sure he would have shaken her off like Cyrax did to Joffrey or something like that. So while she couldn't rule Balerion, the Black Dread clearly wasn't annoyed at her presence, at least not overmuch. He did bring her back, after all. In a lonely watchtower overlooking the waters of Blackwater Bay, a guard had glimpsed dark wings in the distance and sounded the alarm. 
He sounded the horn again as the wings grew larger, and a third time when he saw the dragon plain, black against the clouds. Valerian had returned to King's Landing. It had been long years since the Black Dread had last been seen in the skies above the city, and the sight filled many a Kingslander with dread, wondering if, somehow, Magor the Cruel had returned from beyond the grave to mount him once again. Alas, the rider clinging to his neck was not a dead king, but a dying child. Valerian's shadow swept across the yards and halls of the Red Keep as he came down, his huge wings buffeting the air to land in the inner ward by Magor's Holdfast. The great shadow, the mention of Magor, and the three horn blasts. That's a chilling moment, my fellow Westorians. And yet another example of George R. R. Martin's fantastic writing. George's penchant for an ability to describe scenes in great detail is an assault on the senses when it comes to the descriptions of what happened to Erea, though. (laughs) The discovery of those things inside her begs the question of what the hell and hell feels like the right word to use, happened over there in the smoking ruins of Valyria. Understandably, the recounting of Erea's ordeal takes center stage and is one of the most memorable parts of Fire and Blood, but this is Balerion's episode, so let's focus on what happened to the Black Dread. And while it's nowhere near as disgusting, it's just as mysterious and probably related. What caused this? That enormous beast... The Black Dread, the most fearsome dragon ever to soar through the skies of Westeros, returned to King's Landing with half-healed scars that no man recalled ever having seen before, and a jagged rent down his left side, almost nine feet long, a gaping red wound from which his blood still dripped, hot and smoking. What the? How? Just, whoa. We've spent much of this episode describing how effectively unbeatable Balerion was, how the Black Dread was monstrous even compared to other dragons. We spoke on how impervious the dragon seemed to be, how there are no accounts of notable woundings until this one, which is as mysterious as it is unfathomable. What could possibly rip a hole in Balerion's scales, which had been growing thicker and tougher for over 150 years like that? Did whatever lay... Eggs or worms in Erea do this to Balerion? Still, let's not forget who we're dealing with. If Balerion could talk, he might say something like, You think my wound is nasty? You should see what I did to them. Point being, whatever did that, if it was a living thing, probably didn't get away without a fight. And our money is on Balerion, if anyone won at all. But what is it? (laughs) A huge fireworm? Some other thing? Creature? A wound from volcanic activity doesn't seem super likely, given dragons love volcanoes. And anything Balerion couldn't handle heat-wise probably would have killed Araya outright. So, it's kind of hard to fathom either way. With that in mind, it's curious that she died of the infection, or whatever we should call it. Some tales of Valyria indicate humans would die immediately from the toxic conditions. But wherever Balerion took her, it was the worms with faces that got her, not the inhalation of fumes or heat or even starvation. Though technically she didn't die until a little after her return home, she's the only one we know of to die riding the Black Dread, but also the only one to be a dragon passenger instead of a dragon rider. Araya would clearly rather not have earned that distinction, though. We're missing a few names. After all, we don't know who rode Balerion before Aegon the Conqueror, but while it was surely someone, we know they didn't die in dragon vs. dragon combat because there was apparently no dragon vs. dragon combat in that era. Aegon I died of old age slash natural causes. Magor died on the throne, not in the saddle. 
and Balerion's final rider will outlive him. The last ride and the rebirth. That final rider is Viserys I, though he was Prince Viserys at the time. Balerion was the first resident of the Dragon Pit after it was completed, with a few others moving in to live there as well, while others stayed at the Red Keep. A concern was to prevent a repeat of what happened with Erea, and for time, access to Balerion was restricted, even to the younger Targaryens, by the New Order of Dragon Keepers. But by this time, they needn't have worried about someone stealing Balerion and causing problems anymore. In 93 AC, Prince Balon's 16-year-old son, Viserys, entered the dragon pit and claimed Balerion. The old dragon had stopped growing at last, but he was sluggish and heavy and hard to rouse, and he struggled when Viserys urged him up into the air. The young prince flew thrice around the city before landing again. He had intended to fly to Dragonstone, he told his father afterward, but he did not think the Black Dread had the strength for it. Less than a year later... Valerian was gone, the last living creature in all the world who saw Valeria in its glory, wrote Septon Bath. We know that old saying. The dragon must have three laps around the city. The combination of the great wounding plus aging seemed to finally take a toll. And maybe other things did too. Unseen things that Erea was the only witness to. The Black Dread was weak in body, but still a powerful symbol. When Prince Viserys made the choice, he was not next in line to be king, though his father was, and that was a recent development, because Prince Balon's elder brother, Prince Aemon, had just died the year before. So Viserys may have been thinking that Balerion was fit for him because he had so recently found himself in the direct line of succession to the Iron Throne. Even without the dragon's might, Balerion's legacy, a legacy that included forging the Iron Throne with his own breath, was a potent thing to have in his corner. We're looking mostly through the lens of A Song of Ice and Fire, of characters living over 200 years after Balerion's death. So it might seem odd that a weak old dragon was such a big deal to a Targaryen prince at a time when House Targaryen had lots of princes, princesses, and dragons of all sizes, healthier ones at that. But none of them, not even Vagar, had even a shred of Balerion's legacy. We didn't even learn her colors until 2021, and Meraxes weren't revealed until 2014. But Balerion's coloring has been part of George's initial plan since prior to the first book's release. Early in the Clash of Kings, we get this from Daenerys. And Balerion, his fire was as black as his scales, his wings so vast that whole towns were swallowed up in their shadow when he passed overhead. The Dothraki looked at her hatchlings uneasily. The largest of her three was shiny black, his scales slashed with streaks of vivid scarlet to match his wings and horns. Khaleesi, Argo murmured. There sits Balerion. Come again. The pearl, the ship, the cat, and the skull. The dragon must have three things named after it also. First, we have a descendant of the Black Pearl of Bravos. One of her children, apparently with Aegon IV the Unworthy, was named Balerion. But we don't know what became of that child. Probably wisely just stayed away from Westeros. Tis a silly place. Second, a three within three. Danny takes the three ships Illyrio sends her and renames them Balerion, Meraxes, and Vagar. The one renamed Balerion had been the largest of the three, of course. Third, finally, the black kitten owned by Princess Rhaenys, whom she named Balerion, is widely believed to be the same cat Arya chases down into the cellars, where she finds herself surrounded by skulls. Here's what happens when Balerion leads Arya to Balerion. It's dead, she said aloud. It's just a skull. It can't hurt me. Yet somehow, the monster seemed to know she was there. 
She could feel its empty eyes watching her through the gloom, and there was something in that dim, cavernous room that did not love her. She edged away from the skull and backed into a second, larger than the first. For an instant she could feel its teeth digging into her shoulder as if it wanted a bite of her flesh. Arya whirled, felt leather catch and tear as a huge fang nipped at her jerkin, and then she was running. Another skull loomed ahead, the biggest monster of all, but Arya did not even slow. She leapt over a ridge of black teeth as tall as swords, dashed through hungry jaws, and threw herself against the door. Balerion was and is many things. The key to the conquest, a portal to understanding the mysteries of Valyria before and after the Doom, a parallel to Drogon, and undoubtedly both a symbol of power and an unstoppable force of destruction. Even in death, Balerion's skull carries these echoes, prominently displayed in the throne room of the Red Keep until the time of Robert Baratheon. But now Robert is gone, his line is in peril, but that skull is still down there. Arya didn't even know which skull was which, but it's easy for us to tell that it was that last one, because she deems it the biggest monster of all... And that gives it away. And that's exactly right. Balerion the Black Dread was the biggest dragon of all time. Recording and editing by Shea. Quotes by McCall Schick at Ink as Rain on Twitter and co-host with me of the Podcast of Surprise, a Witcher book club podcast. Headers by Zach Louie of the Game of Owns podcast. Thanks to our patrons, Lord Stephen Stark, titles, titles, Hand of Queen Ashea, who is known as the best, Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog and Warden of the West, Lord George Stormsville the Cunning, Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East, Gabeth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Defender of the Old Gods and Warden of the North, Lord Brendan Lannister, the Bloodline, Ruler of Castle Everroar, Warden of the South. Jenny the Just, captain of the ghost ship Liberty, which vanished in the Shivering Sea over a century ago, but has recently been sighted near Volantis, if the tales can be believed. King Beyond the Wall, Sidney Jesse is the Fallborn, Lord of Blue Spring and the Haunted Forest, wields a dagger of dragonglass and the Valyrian steel blade Redfrost. Sea Lord Sean Gallagher is the Titan's Binger, owner of nine Valyrian steel ears. Our White Walker patrons include Araya Flint of the Mountain Flints, captured by the Weeper, only to be raised in the Valley of the Milkwater, Blue Eyes and Golden Memories. Alexander Greyblood, first of the First Men, now crowned in ice, called Silencebringer, Woodblinder, and the Snow of Night, wielder of the ice-forged greatsword Pale Frost. Our small council includes Lord Benjen of House Hornwood, Master of Laws, Lord Taylor of House Lineberry, Strength of Stone, Will of Iron, Master of Coin, Bloody Ben Blackwood, Master of Whispers, Grand Maester Liam Mullen, and Drowned Dan, Lord of House Windsor, Master of Karate, Friendship for Everyone, and Ships. Lords and ladies in their castles include Lady Dyerlis of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron, Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell, Breaker of the Second Stone, Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Breadfort, Ashlyn Winter, the Hawk's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall, the Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrest is wielder of the Valyrian Seal Machete Everglazed. Lord Bemmy Snugglebunny is guardian ranger of the Hidden Hundred Acre Werewood, dual wielder of the Valyrian Short Swords Glorious Morning and Little Lightwise. Sharpshooter of the Werewood and Ironwood Laminated Longbow, Todd Von Oben. When you fear things cannot get worse, Snugglebunny enters the fray. The Bastard of the Wolfswood, first forester of the Old Gods, sworn to House Iron Werewood, listen for the silence. Casey Stark of House Acres. Peter Rivers, the Pale Dragon and heir to Bloodraven. Lady Mara of House Stark is Archmistress of Apothecaries and Woods Witch. Her castle features werewood doors with painted moons. Lena Snow, the Twilight Star, bastard daughter of Dane, wife of the Trickster, and Lady of Castle Rivia. 
Jason Stark is second son of the North, wielder of the Valyrian steel sword. Jason Stark is second son of the North, wielder of the Valyrian steel sword Bloodbath, Lord of Castle Whitewood. The chill is real. Suckass Gamer is master of soap and clay. Aminda Pinkwolf is lady and ruler of Castle Whitefast. The ice emboldens. Our King's Justice is Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian steel blade Fate. Our Queen's High Council includes Rebea Stareyes, Lady of Waves and Mistress of Ships, Captain of the Iron Shadowcat. In the shadows we bear our claws. Grand Archmaester Rennie, whose rod and ring and mask are Quartz Crystal, wielder of the Valyrian steel pen, fire and ink. The Purple Lord, Leo Anansi, is Master of Whisperers. Lady Wolfbird is Mistress of the Eastern Rivers, Gatekeeper of the Northern Skies, Daughter of the Silver Sea, and Master of Coin. Lady Carlin Carey of Castle Stonesharp, whose horse is shod in Valyrian steel, is Prime Rider of the Rising Hills, Master of Laws. The Kingsguard is led by Lord Commander Namian of House Darkland, the Night Slayer, Valyrian Sword, Onyx Abyss. Sir Dean the White is Knight of the Black Star. Gregor Snow called Snowbear is a Bastard of Winterfell. Vaughn of House Furster. Sigil is a mailed fist with extended forefinger and pinky on light blue field. Visenya let us hold Dark Sister once. Sir Bateman, the Dark Knight. Sir Roland de Stark, Gunslinger Knight of the Winter Kings, back from a 20-year ranging to the lands of Always Winter to protect my King Aziz. Queensguard is led by Lord Captain Commander Hayma Helminth, the Sellsword Sentinel, backed by Sir Rambo, Knight of House Ganon, First Blood. Amber the Adamant, the Knight of Mist and Mother of Squids. The Wintry Wolverine, we finish what you begin. Nora Neko, Archmaester Vena, whose ring and rod and mask are made of steel, not pudding. Laura Boros, the Lady of Infinity. Our Beard Guard is led by Lord Commander George the Golden, backed by Lady Rita of the Coppermane, the Unbound, Dance the Fervor, and Sir Jeff, Warden of the AC, Wielder of Triad, the multifaceted Beard of Platinum, Red, and Brown. Stay frosty. Last but not least, Lord Commander Richard the Ligerheart, wielder of Barry's Ankle Breaker, a flail with blue and silver Valyrian steel spikes, motto, Go Blue, leader of the History of Westeros, Night's Watch. First builder, Magor Snow, is Magor the Cool, the fire in the snow. First ranger, Liam, a.k.a. Sir Waiting on a Nickname, and first steward, Sir Zack of House Wild, Lord Shredder of the Spiral, wielder of the Valyrian steel axe, Grail. Get a cool title like this, plus access to scripts, bonus episodes, and many more things through our website, historyofwesteros.com, or you can sign up directly at Patreon at patreon.com slash historyofwesteros. Valar, re-read us.